Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis. This week, I've invited a very special guest, Abby Miller, who is Executive Vice President of the Memphis Medical District Collaborative. And I've known Abby a long time. I invited her on because she's had a really interesting career here in Memphis, but she's leaving to take another exciting opportunity at the Carter Center. So I thought it would be a great time to talk about some of the interesting projects she's worked on here, some of which we've worked on together, and just kind of reflect on how Memphis has changed during her time and some of her work. So welcome, Abby. Thanks, Emily, and uh, thank you for that very warm introduction. Um, I am excited today to be able to do some looking back while I'm at a point of kind of looking forward because, um, you know, it'll be actually 10 years um, here in Memphis. And so it's a nice time to kind of pause and take stock and really, um, I'm really glad to be here. So Abby, you came to Memphis to work. I'm going to I'm going to describe your bio, and if I get anything wrong, just tell me. You came to Memphis to work for an entity that was called at the time the Mayor's Innovation Delivery Team, and is now called Innovate Memphis. That is correct, yes. So we were funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies um, back under the Wharton administration to launch Memphis's first innovation delivery team. We were one of five cities selected to kind of pilot this approach or methodology around um, innovation within specifically the civic space. Well, and Innovate Memphis is still going strong and doing a lot of important work, but you and some other members of the team left Innovate Memphis to go to the Memphis Medical District Collaborative where, where you are now, right? Correct. Yes. So um, on Innovate Memphis, um, Tommy Pacello, who is now the president of the Memphis Medical District Collaborative, and myself, um, we went over in starting in 2016 to really form this um, district level entity. And what is the, just quickly, what is the Memphis Medical District Collaborative? Sure. The Memphis Medical District Collaborative is a community development organization, and we work with the major health and education institutions in the medical district in order to strengthen the community um, in the district, making it more livable, vibrant, and safe. Um, As we know, it's a huge economic engine for the city, but in terms of the overall um, livability of the district, the cleanliness of the district, the visual appearance of the district, um, it had been not as invested in as a comprehensive part of the city. And we had seen so much activity 
which we continue to see downtown and in Midtown. And it was really that missing connector that um, as an organization getting up every day and just really working to build up um, a really a live work kind of place within the district. So, Abby, I don't like to think of myself as someone who suffers from a failure of imagination, but I've been in community development for a long time. And I think, you know, until Innovative Memphis, um, Innovate Memphis came to be, you know, along with my peers, I thought of community development in very traditional ways, you know, affordable housing, commercial revitalization, um, you know, might be parks or uh, neighborhood amenities, but the Innovate Memphis and really at the time the the innovation delivery team really came at that from a different perspective. It was part of what was happening around the country, and it was incremental and creative and idea based. So, you know, we didn't know what pop ups were, and so talk a little bit about how that approach, how that sort of came to be in Memphis, and then what some of the components of it were, you know, some of that work you're still doing in the medical district. So hopefully there's a question in there. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I think what was different or unique or what we were able to why we were able to be effective as part of the mayor's innovation delivery team now innovate Memphis um, was partially like it created space for um, I think when you're often working in, in a specific discipline or field, you know, or field you're, you're day in and day out, you know, doing your project management and keeping things moving forward and, advancing priorities and fundraising and you're wearing the multitude of hats that we all wear, you know, in the nonprofit sector. And I think what was different about Innovate Memphis was it it just created space where we were able to spend a lot of time and energy in an intentional way, really doing, really taking a hard look at what is happening in Memphis that was that could have been accelerated, advanced, or strengthened. So I think back to like the early work that had happened on Broad Avenue and what the what the businesses on Broad Avenue had been able to do just by um, kind of rethinking their their working together and their kind of making the street more walkable, bikeable, and friendly. Um, so we were able to say, "Wow, that seemed to have." a pretty good impact. How can we build on that? And at the same time, we were able to take a national look at trends and things that were happening in other cities or similar markets that might have been able to be tested or tried here in Memphis. So let's pause just for a minute and and um, just let tell people a little more about what we're talking about as sort of a specific example. You're mentioning really an event of several years ago called New Face for an Old Broad that used some of these techniques to ignite changes that led to what is now Broad Avenue in a number of different places. So 
explain what Metfix is and what sort of the L you talked a little bit a minute ago about what some of the elements were, because I want people to understand like some very, some examples of the, the concepts we're talking about. Sure. So I think some of the core strategies and concepts that we were able to deploy were um, number one, looking at the built environment or the walkability walkability, bikeability, and general attractiveness of a street or a place. So how long does it take a pedestrian to get across the street? Do you have um, infrastructure for people who want to bike? Like, is your you know, essentially without using jargon, because I know we're, <laughs> we're, we're oh, avoiding maybe the ring jargon. The bell. <laughs> <laughs> um, essentially, you know, how could you make a commercial corridor in particular, or like a small pocket of neighborhoods, like from a physical environment, how do you make that the most friendly to anybody who whether you walk there, you bike there, or you drive there. And in some cases, it's as simple as looking at on-street parking and how you can make that more effective. And then I think the strategy that complements that is working with the, with the existing businesses to say um, there's some vacant there was a lot of vacancy. I think there's less vacancy today in Memphis, but in some of our commercial corridors, we were really suffering from vacancy. And it was looking at a whole suite of tools and tactics of how do you get tenants in there quickly? How do you look at your building codes in order to um, not make it a two-year investment to get a space reopened? How do you clean it up, fix it up, and get it ready for a longer-term investment? So I think Yet to Memphis was an idea that we can take an incremental approach. It was still like retailers were still signing five-year leases or, you know, these kind of which are bigger hurdles to small businesses. And a lot of it was looking at how do we do this quickly and effectively meeting the minimum safety requirements necessary. Um, But, you know, some strategies to create a, I guess, an easier path for people to get started so that you can open up a whole space of of small business opportunity to local retail, um, in particular, those, those creatives, the artists, the folks that, um, you know, that, that have ideas and are doing things, but that you can really support. Um, and so I think combining those different things was in an effort to make these more dynamic, walkable pockets of activity within within the city. Well, one of the the wonderful things about those efforts is that you could literally see people that came to the location thinking about it in a new way. Like, I never, I remember this about Broad, I remember this about the Memphis on Cleveland, that, and, and, and the similar work in the edge is, is just, you could almost see the gears turning in people's heads, like, wow, I never, I never thought of this place in this way. And, and then, you know, in the majority of the cases, it does ignite permanent 
it might take a while, but it ignites our permanent or longer, if not permanent, longer term change. So the concept turns into reality and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of that almost like we talk a lot about livability, but we don't spend nearly as much talking about like lovability. And I think that wheels turning is like it brings up either a nostalgia or an interest or um, like, like when you think about what happened at Crosstown where we did a memfix prior to the Crosstown redevelopment. And again, always working with partnerships from the University of Memphis to the city to Crosstown um, arts at the time, you know, it was like, we just needed to remind people that, that like the number of stories from the Sears building and this being a real hub for Memphis, I mean, over time, prior to the redevelopment of the Sears building, I think it became like, it like cast a shadow on Midtown And I think what some of these tools do is like they reignite that lovability of a place by by saying like we care and I think you care and like together we can like reimagine what's possible. Well, and unlocking potential of all kinds. I'm the most familiar was the most familiar with broad since I was involved in putting that together. And, but I'm sure similarly played out in other places that, you know, once it was done, long vacant buildings, like literally got rented um, in a very short period of time and took many years, but eventually transformed, you know, the whole area. And so unlocking that lovability potential, but also unlocking economic potential. Exactly. And I think one of the things, you know, major accomplishments on Broad, I mean, you have the HAMP line today, which was just like a seed in everyone's mind. And I think with the retail, after the new face for an old Broad, I think the businesses were way more aligned with their vision for the neighborhood. So um, innovate Memphis, we were able to come along and help them do that. Um, Mem Shop, which was the temporary retail incubation, in a way that had like neighborhood buy in and involvement. Like there was a vision, and we were able to help kind of accelerate that vision because of all the work that had been done together. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to Abby Miller from Memphis Medical District Partnership about her work in Memphis over the past decade, specifically as it relates to small scale strategies that help lead to neighborhood revitalization. Well, Abby, that's actually, I wanted to, to, that that's perfect because I wanted to shift gears a little bit to talking about your support of, of small retailers um, because you, you spearheaded some things at Innovate Memphis and also things you're doing at um, the taken to the medical district collaborative. I'm thinking about, you know, facade assistance, mem shop, the mem mobile program, you know, a box lot. So those are a lot of different examples, but obviously that's been really important to the work. Yeah. I mean, I think 
I mean, everybody who's listening could probably relate to like a great experience you've had in a city or a place. And often that great experience has to do with, you know, you've been able to be in an area or a district where, you know, you have access to like great local retail and great food and great entertainment. And those things, I think, needed some intentionality in order to um, bring them together. I think there's lots of great hustle, as we like to say at MMDC here in Memphis. But I think sometimes the small businesses just needed a little bit of support to overcome some of the hiccups that are naturally experienced when opening. I mean, we at, at the innovation team, you know, we found often the financial delta for a business, business opening, which was, you know, eight to $10,000 of incentives. So it wasn't a huge financial delta, but a lot of it was just having that coaching and support in order to, to see it through to opening. And okay, go ahead. No, yeah, I was just going to say, so some of those lessons and tools, I mean, we've definitely translated to the medical district. I think in particular, it's creating multiple paths. So whether you're at an idea stage with your business, like we want to connect you to resources to help you work out that idea, turn it into a plan. If you're at a stage where you're ready to test an idea or concept, we want an on-ramp where you could pop up for a day, a week, a month, six months. And if you're ready for a brick and mortar, we want to eliminate the as many barriers and obstacles as possible to help you find a space, find a lease, and then fix up that space to get it ready for opening. Well, and maybe this is a little bit of a digression, but I feel like, you know, testing proof of concept is just a theme has been a theme throughout your work. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. I think, um, you know, it's always the concept or the phrase that you may have heard like test before you invest. So I think it's, you know, for example, in Memphis, um, even, even a decade ago, there were active and vibrant like artist markets, for example. So maybe, annually or during the holiday season, you know, you come out, you're making something um, and you're able to sell it at a market. So then how do you take that type of retailer and build the bench for them to be in a business that's more um, permanent? So this can become their, so their creative pursuit can become their like livelihood. And I think it's not like you go from selling at a market to signing a five-year lease, like that's a pretty risky, high bar kind of jump. So it was it was really about developing these bridge kind of strategies, whether it's a space that's ready to be set up and tested for a month or two, or whether it's signing a one-year lease or whether it's providing incentives. But I think the notion is, You have this huge creative community in Memphis, but that creative community, it hasn't always been people's like full-time livelihood opportunity. So how do you build these ways for people to 
with minimal risk, you know, we, we don't want to see a, an artist or a creative or somebody with a business, you know, go bankrupt by trying out their idea. But how do you pr- create opportunities to test, learn, grow, um, and build? I mean, one of the examples I could share is early on on Broad Avenue, we had worked with a wonderful local artist named NJ Woods. So she had said it was one of her goals and priorities to, you know, eventually have her own gallery. So her and her daughter worked together. Her daughter is Cara Woods, who's also a local artist. And they, we helped them on Broad for for a period of time, you know, develop their own like pop-up gallery. And they ended up, I mean, at the end of the testing period, NJ said to me, like, I always thought I wanted to run a gallery, but I realized that I didn't. I wanted to be an artist, you know, and this was, you know, maybe not the business opportunity that I thought that I wanted to pursue. And she ended up working out with one of the local galleries, T. Clifton, which was right across the street, to be able to show her work through them at their gallery so there isn't, I guess what I would say is like, we need to see that as a happy ending because you have somebody who is given the opportunity to test out their idea. They learned from it. They, she grew her business from it, but ultimately decided, you know, it wasn't exactly the path forward, which I think creating more of those opportunities is just like, is the way to build that local retail presence, not... You know, if you don't want your corridors to be filled with, you know, chain stores and things like that, that's you have to, in a sense, create these opportunities for people. Well, and that's one of the exciting things about the work, but something you have to kind of wrap your mind around is that some of these interventions are temporary and that's okay. Some of them are temporary and don't become permanent. Some shouldn't become permanent. It's a lot of times it's just asking people to think about a place or a business in a new way. And like you said, there's multiple happy endings and not just this traditional trajectory that we expect. Yeah. I mean, I think the happy ending, if you will, becomes a broader story about us investing in our arts and culture as a place and providing opportunities to people in that space um, but in a different in a different way. Like I think about Box Lot, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and just to give your listeners some context, so Box Lot, we took shipping containers and converted them into you know two hundred square foot mini stores um, in the medical district. So and it was based on an area, a parking lot that was sort of ugly, <laughs> ugly and unsightly. I mean. Yeah, so we sort of worked to try and say how could we temporarily infill this location because we know development may be down the road, but it's not like tomorrow. And I think what was interesting is, you know, we've worked with several retailers to come in and out of the space, and some have eventually had their online business take off, and some have stayed and are looking for brick and mortars, and some have pivoted and learned you know, for COVID, what they thought their business model might be, might actually be sort of different. Like one of our retailers, their memfolk, they create these beautiful Instagrammable kind of installations. 
And something that the test and then the pandemic taught them was there was a demand amongst like corporate clients to create these kinds of spaces and opportunities. And they ended up building a whole customer base that they hadn't even thought of. Um, So again, I think, you know, I think the main thing is, is like, how do you create spaces that are good for the neighborhood that that give neighborhood value and benefit, but also create those on ramps for entrepreneurs and business owners. Lastly, you've done a lot of work with some of these small businesses and more broadly on the appearance of buildings and the appearance of businesses through, you know, facade work and, Talk about that a little bit that the, the, you know, my observations of that are sometimes are like a little goes a long way, but also I know from talking to you, businesses don't always understand why that's important. And especially in lower income neighborhoods where they're, you know, inclined to put up bars and make a building, you know, seem less attractive from the outside kind of counterintuitively. You've done a lot of work in the, um, in along Cleveland and Madison to help businesses there improve their facades. And just something I really, you know, just the physical appearance of businesses is, I guess, something I respond to personally. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think there's just been, you know, wanting a higher standard in terms of design in general, whether it's building design or street design. I mean, you know, Memphis has these beautiful historical commercial corridors. We have not made the mistake in a lot of cases of, of you know, of tear down kind of mentality, right? We've done this like preservation in a lot of places, not all and not always. But to me, it's like mostly just peeling off um, the stuff that was defensive or less inviting or, you know, you often find like anybody that spends time on the Cleveland corridor, you know, it's like gem after gem after gem, but you sort of have to dust off the the, the buildings. And I think what we're trying to do is just bring out the best, unique, individual attributes of every space in order to help business owners, whether it's financially or emotionally, realize the value of investing um, in their space. I think that that notion of the grittiness of Memphis is like good, but also like we want to demand like a higher standard in terms of our like physical environment here. Like the facade improvement project at, of the BAM thrift shop, the old hardware store at Cleveland and Madison, you know, is amazing. The business looks so much more inviting now with that little porch and they had some chain link. The building was well-maintained, but it's a whole, it looks great. And I'm a thrift shop person anyway, but now I'll be like, I need to check that out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's almost like no one could even remember why the barbed wire went up there. It was just kind of a vestige and 
when, when we worked with, um, Bam, who is like a wonderful neighbor and like so involved in community work, it was sort of like, why does this building look like the, you know, and I think it's just, again, we work a lot with designers to do renderings. Like we at MM, at the Memphis Medical District Collaborative and also at Innovate Memphis, a lot of time before just visual, re-visualizing what a business could look like. Um, and I think the owners just, it's like you see something every day, so you just sort of get used to it and you forget why it was like that in the first place. And so... I think a lot of it has just been not a hard sell, but just like a reimagination um, and kind of seeing this beautiful historic space that's um, that's there. And I think BAM is such a good example, actually, because they even started like a coffee cart business in the meantime as like an additional program because they have this patio area to serve um, coffee from um where before it was just, you know, just chain link and barbed wire. So, um, and we have, we hope we just got approved. Everybody knows the wonderful um, market Viet Hoa, which is right on Cleveland, which we just got approved to do a facade improvement there. At much needed. You know, just making the outside reflect the inside, you know. I hope there's parking lot improvements involved with that. <laughs> there was some there was some planning on that. So more to come. It's definitely an ongoing process. So Abby, some of these strategies we've talked about today have been, you know, implemented by other entities here, like the Downtown Memphis Commission, I think some community development corporations. Do you see that continuing? I mean, is this, are these um, kinds of programs here to stay in Memphis? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think this kind of circles back to where I started from the beginning, which is um, a huge boon of the innovation team was really the deep partnerships that were formed and the deep relationships formed to do the work. Um, whereby, you know, again, working with the businesses on broad, working across town, city of Memphis, um, working with building Memphis and other community, community development partners. It was, it was really changing, I think, in a lot of ways or shaping or growing or learning together, you know, how to deploy these tactics, which you see even abundant in, and I, I'm in no way taking credit from Memphis 3.0, but that type of small scale neighborhood planning, like it's just such an, it's such a great asset that we have in Memphis is these, and, and that kind of approach, I think you know, being able to have space and time to take that approach to things, I think is, 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 is a different direction for the city. And one that I think is informed by this more incremental neighborhood based development approach. So I see it in I see a mind shift change in the whole community about how we think about redevelopment and what we think about neighborhoods growing and how we build off of assets. I agree with that, Abby. And, and I want to say that I think it's um, in part a legacy of yours. 
while you've been here. I'm sorry to see you go, but you've made, you and your team have made a huge impact here. So thank you for coming to Memphis and thank you for coming on to Memphis Metropolis. Thank you. I mean, it's so bittersweet to be looking forward and looking back, as I mentioned, and Memphis will always be like this, that like, y'all are my weird cousins and uncles and, you know, aunts and like really in a family way. And um, I just think there's so much that's going to happen in the future. And I'm so excited to have been part of the story, even if it's just in some small. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. And I'm here with Charlie Santo, who hopefully you remember is one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Charlie. Thanks, Emily. Good to be here. So, Charlie, earlier in the show, I was um, talking to Abby Miller from the, who's with the Memphis Medical District Collaborative now. And I have to say, I'm very sorry to have Abby leaving Memphis. Seems like we're, we've got some talent leaving town. And it's exciting that um, other cities are, other cities and organizations are recognizing that talent, but it's also, um, it's also just unfortunate when really great people move on and you wonder who's going to fill their shoes. But, um, we talked about a lot of different strategies that, that she helped pioneer in Memphis as part of her work with the collaborative and before that with Innovate Memphis, um, some of which is really known as creative placemaking. One of the things I ask you about, ask her about at the end is whether or not as she's leaving, if she sees these kind of tactics continuing on in Memphis. And I wanted to ask you about that too, because part of me thinks that, you know, maybe creative placemaking, people also call it creative placekeeping now, um, you know, is that a gimmick whose time is run out? People do associate it with gentrification um, because a lot of times uh, it's it's used to ignite areas that go on to be revitalized and have new housing and commercial go in. I certainly for sure understand that that criticism. So what are your thoughts about that in particular? Yeah, I, I think you bring up some good points. Um, but really, any any planning process or any sort of intervention process that's designed to create neighborhood revitalization, you have to be mindful of the other end of that, which is gentrification. So you've got to sort of build in, you know, tools to address that on the front end. Uh, but yeah, creative placemaking, it is one of these things that sort of really swelled uh, five, six years ago. And then there was a little bit of a backlash against it. And, you know, for, for several reasons, one is it's a lot of it is small scale stuff. And we're looking at little small scale changes in neighborhoods in some cases that really need 
big change and big interventions and, and real attention from public policy and from local government. And so on, on, on in some sense, it's almost like um, we're going to give you this, this little thing instead of doing what you really need, right? We're going to give you some planters and some benches instead of actually addressing the systemic problems that exist. Um, but on the other hand, it, it does create uh, a recognizability. And when you're trying to put a neighborhood sort of on the map uh, as a neighborhood, that can be really helpful. Uh, and I think it was really helpful in, in a place like Broad Avenue, right, where people where this was a neighborhood that was sort of devastated by physical changes and, and you know, the way the way the city changed physically over the years and, and the, the disconnections that that created um, and the tactical urbanism and new face for an old broad really brought people back to that neighborhood. Um, and I think that something that Abby said when she was talking about, you know, we talk about livability a lot, but some of these things are about creating lovability, lovability. I think it's, it's also creating recognizability, like those little design interventions, the art installations, the planters, the painted crosswalks, the facade improvements, they really make you feel like when you enter that space, that you're in something cohesive, that you're in a neighborhood. Um, and so I think that recognizability does a lot for the people that live there in terms of how they feel about the place. Uh, but it also helps others recognize this is a place worth caring about and investing in. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's still useful. Also, I've sort of observed that, and maybe you have as well, that part of this, part of the success of these strategies is managing expectations. You know, the mem fixes became so popular that all kinds of neighborhoods wanted to adopt them. And for reality, that model is not really a good fit for, I mean, some of the, not all the mem fixes were successful, even in very urban areas, but I've heard, you know, Frazier did something similar once and, um, and wasn't for me to say, but I was thinking, you know, this is not really a good fit in a what we think of as sort of an urban sprawl kind of setting where um, there's not any kind of compact development. So I think that con has contributed to it, um, to, you know, people's not feeling certain about it, that it's not always has to be deployed in the right place at the right time. Yeah, works in some places, not in all places. So before we move on, though, I wanted to tell you, and I don't know if you noticed this at the time, but um, of course, you know, there was a series of mem fixes that haven't been done in a year or two. But about a year ago, I got some, you know, public notice about a big, I guess it was a widening of I-240 loop. And it was some public meetings and they were calling it Memfix. That's right, yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> just take me out back and shoot me. <laughs> you know, you know the, that term has really, whatever they say, jump the shark when it's being used it's in, in that context, which is the, total, the an, yeah. total antithesis of what, how Memphis was designed to be. So, so moving on, um, as I said, Abby and I talked, she's really has been involved in pioneering a lot of very innovative uh, strategies and tactics. And, and we talked a lot about that. We didn't talk as much about the work of the medical district collaborative. And so I thought you and I could talk about that for a minute, because that's been a huge, um, 
force for change on a lot of different levels here in Memphis. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the sort of the changing landscape of community development in Memphis over the last 10, 15 years. And the Memphis Medical District Collaborative is certainly an organization that has come on and been very effective um, in a short period of time. And I think it's critical. I mean, it's a really important place uh, for us to focus those community development resources. And so luckily, you know, the combination of our uh, our benevolent philanthropic shadow government <laughs> and um, those institutions that that make their home in the medical district have come together and, and supported this financially. And Abby and Tommy and the, the rest of the crew have, have really done a great job. But it, the reason I think it's so critical is if you think about, you know, this is an area, if you look at historic population trends, there were mon- once more than 30,000 people living in that area. And it's now maybe a third of that in terms of population. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's now kind of this emerging market, you know, because of all the new developments that are happening and the improvements that Abby talked about. And that means potential displacement as the area changes. So there's a, we have to look at sort of the housing and the housing and population situation there. Uh, and I think it's critically important in a neighborhood like that, that we maintain, or in some cases create affordable housing, um, because of the kinds of jobs that are available there, right? The, those medical institutions have all kinds of jobs. It's not just doctors and scientists, but there are lots of good sort of entry-level, low-skill jobs, janitorial stuff, food services. And the medical field has a lot of these high-paying jobs that don't require a medical degree or even a, even a college degree. Like you can get a, a certification through Southwest Tennessee to do radiology or, or medical lab tech. So those kind of institutions have an opportunity to move people out of poverty. Uh, and if you can have people finding ways to live affordably near those, then you're eliminating the transportation cost. Um, and so that can really be a benefit unless those people are, are priced out by that, by the prices in that emerging market. So that's something that really need really needs to be focused on is affordability. Well, I know they're, that they have a pretty robust housing strategy um, of course, some of it is um, housing for students. So people who students who live in the area like Southern College of Optometry is building an apartment building or a dorm for their students. But but, you know, I think the area north of um, one of the areas designated for that is north of Poplar. Ray Brandon and I talked about it last week because um, there's an there's uh, a plan to put affordable housing there and also to recruit the efforts of some emerging developers who will, um, you know, build housing in that area and then build their own capacity in the development arena. But that's, I mean, you're, you're make, make a great point because more people living near the jobs, that's a, a a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they're addressing it, um, you know, in my conversations with Tommy and Abby and, um, some of the work that they've put out, they're really looking at this sort of imbalance in land uses in the area. Uh, you know, you've got a huge footprint of institutional uses, um, not so much in terms of housing yet to, to handle all that, the, that living near where you work, uh, and a lot of surface parking. And I think one of the things that they're trying to do is address the need for that surface parking. There's a lot of surface parking there because right now, a lot of the people at work in those institutions, the vast majority of them are driving alone. Uh, and so they need spots to park their cars. 
Um, so they're trying to find ways to address that through transportation demand management and, and improving uh, mobility. Oh, so Plus, I understand that all the institutions feel like they need their own parking lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if you can unlock some of that land that's tied up in parking, uh, that frees up some for housing. And one of the ways they're doing that is with this Groove shuttle, you know, which is trying to create an opportunity to 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 find people that live nearby. Like a lot of people that work in the medical district live on live in Harbor Town. And so now they're sending the shuttle with frequent stops back and forth between the medical district and Harbor Town to get those people out of their cars, and maybe potentially free up some of that land long-term. Uh, and then they're pairing that with making the pedestrian environment more walkable and more friendly. And so that comes with you know, making small improvements to, to little parks like our uh, U of M Design Collaborative has worked with the Medical District Collaborative on a, on a couple of different small-scale triangle park improvements. And these are design-build concepts, the Edge Triangle Park, where that, um, I guess it's Madison and Monroe come together and create that little triangle. There is now a, a nice little park and dog park there um, that gives people something to do um, while they're out you know, eating lunch or, or whatever. So creating some of those small scale public design interventions goes along with, you need those kind of improvements to make it feel walkable for people to realize that, all right, I don't wanna be in my car all the time. Well, I've been impressed with their their ability to blend sort of some of these large, tackle these big problems, parking, transportation, housing, but also make, you know, incremental change in in some of their many sub neighborhoods, mm-hmm. you know, the pinch, the edge, Madison Heights. We talked about that. I've, they've been, um, they've been very successful on that front as well. Yeah, they have, they have been very successful in, in some of the commercial uh, redevelopment, which again, gives more, gives people, you know, another reason to hang around um, during the lunch hour, not get in your car and drive somewhere else to lunch. Uh, if you can do that where you work, then that improves the the vibrancy of the neighborhood. So before we move on, Charlie, um, I just want to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXRFM, and I'm talking to Charlie Santo. So Charlie, um, you know, this kind of strategy, you know, it's called an anchor strategy sometimes in you know, the planning world is called eds and meds because sometimes these community development strategies are built around educational or medical anchors. Um, And the other institution that sort of comes to mind that some of these strategies do seem to lend themselves to is University of Memphis. And um, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, University of Memphis has done some things, but um, there's all kinds of things and of course, these things are expensive, these kind of interventions for the institution and for the public sector. But there's a lot that could be done in the University of Memphis area. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so that we don't have to ring the jargon bell, let's. I'm, I'm going to back up and explain what we mean by <laughs> the, the anchor, anchor concept. I'll bring it anyway, just so <laughs> I can. It's a nerds. Uh, so yeah, the anchor concept, it, it, it does focus a lot on educational institutions, medical institutions. Uh, these are big institutions that have an ability or, or an opportunity to serve as a, a stabilizing influence 
for their immediate communities, their neighbors, uh, bolster the quality of life in the areas surrounding their footprint. Uh, so we're talking about large institutions that are place-based, right? They're rooted in the community. They exist because of the community and they're not going anywhere. So it's different from um, you know, another business where they might pick up and move their corporate headquarters somewhere else where they get a better tax break. The University of Memphis is not leaving Memphis, right? These hospitals are here because of the population's here. They're not leaving. Um, and these these large institutions, they hire lots of people. They procure or buy lots of goods and services, and they often make large-scale investments and develop properties. So they have an opportunity to be very intentional about how they use that, that those resources to improve the community. And it's really built around the pillars of, of living local, buying local, and hiring local. And living local means what we've been talking about, trying to get people that work in these institutions to live near those institutions. Um, buying local is about you know your, procur your procurement practices. We're making sure that when you buy services, food services, laundry services, are you keeping some of that money in the local community? Um, and then hiring local is hiring people from within the neighborhood, hiring your neighbors, right? And all of that strengthens the immediate community. Um, and there are examples, great examples all over the country of combinations of universities and hospitals doing these sort of things. So one that I like to, to talk about is in Cleveland, the Evergreen Cooperatives. Right. And this, you know, there's that started with a group with a kind of a worker owned cooperative laundry service uh, where they would take care of all the laundry service for the hospitals and some of the, the hospitality industry. And that's expanded now into solar energy production and urban farming. Um, another one that I think the the medical district collaborative here was kind of loosely based on is, is uh, Midtown Detroit. Um, so Wayne State and a number of hospitals were involved in trying to, they focused largely early on about the, the live local, trying to get people to live within the area around Wayne State and the hospitals using a number of uh, tactics, forgivable loans for, for home purchases and, and subsidies for rent. Um, and so, yeah, I think the University of Memphis can can do a lot of things like that. Um, that would help to stabilize some of the neighborhoods around the university. And if you look at the neighborhoods around the university, it's kind of a microcosm of the city, right? There's There are very stable, higher income neighborhoods on one side of the university and lower income neighborhoods that uh, are well below the city average on, on another end. And then some neighborhoods that are kind of at this tipping point, like Normal Station, where you're starting to see uh, new private de private development happening and, and pushing people out and changing the character of the neighborhood. So if you thought about a way to uh, incentivize U of M employees to become homeowners in those neighborhoods, and you made it easier for um, U of M staff, you know, people making... $35,000, $45,000 a year to be able to afford to buy a home in those neighborhoods. It supports those people and it supports the stability of those neighborhoods. So I think those are, are strategies that we should be looking at, procurement strategies we should be looking at, um, really finding ways to have the university support the neighborhoods around the university. Well, in the in the medical district, of course, it's a much larger area, but there are the benefits of having multiple institutions there. Yeah. And these kind of strategies, they're expensive. Even like I would love to see more, for example, facade improvement programs 
or or a mem shop type strategy on Highland, even on the nice section of Highland. I mean, first of all, once you go around the corner onto Park, there's all kinds of needs and opportunities there. But even on um, like I said, the nicer part of High, Highland, there's opportunities to improve the appearance. That's just one example. There's incentives for housing. I feel like what has been done has been kind of ad hoc. There's been some streetscape improvements on Highland and a walker, which were very much needed. But um, with only University of Memphis, and of course, right now, it's... Um, experiencing financial pressures related to the pandemic like everybody. What are some funding sources that could be deployed for that? I mean, is it like a like a, a business improvement district like downtown? Um, that's the kind of strategy where you know businesses pay a certain amount of money into a fund every month that pays for trash pickup. It festivals, pays for all kinds of things. It's essentially an extra tax on businesses, but those can work. There's TIF dollars, um, tax increment financing dollars. How would you see, I think there's a lot of people that would like to see these kind of changes in the university district. How would you see those kinds of things potentially being funded? So it wasn't all on the university. Yeah. So I think you're right. It has to be some combination of, of those more innovative financing mechanisms. And I think a business improvement district is, is, would be critical to doing it. Um, you know, there is the TIF district that covers the, the, the nice part of Highland uh, already and, and finding ways to expand the funding from that um, across the tracks to the South um, would be, could be helpful. Um, but, you know, the university has expanded a lot its Park Avenue campus, and there may be some um, property property value enhancements happening in that area that could, could support um, some increment in a TIF district to support some change along Park Avenue and those corridors. Um, and then, you know, I think we could get the, the philanthropic community to think about shared prosperity in the university district as an example of, like I said, as a microcosm of the city itself, right? So the whole idea of shared prosperity is there are some parts of the community and some parts of the city that recovered from the previous recession and others were left behind. And how do we spread that out? You see that at scale in the university district. And are there ways that we can build a business improvement district that taps into stuff happening, happening along the Poplar Corridor to support residents in Messick Bunton and Sherwood Forest. Um, so just to get that kind of attention, you know, I think would be what would be necessary. And then there are other things that the university is already doing that don't cost a whole lot of money that we could do more of, uh, giving people access to resources on campus and um, expanding transportation options. You know, we have the blue line that can work similar to that groove shuttle, um, those sorts of things. Well, and part of it is, I think the university has a strategy to become less of a commuter school, more of a residential school. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw something in the media recently about the university's desire to actually build more student housing on campus, because that's critical to a special research university designation they're trying to achieve. But there's... Um, 
you know, opposition in the community sometimes to, you know, student high rises. There's been some privately developed student housing that has gotten some opposition from the community. And so what's your, I mean, I support the university becoming more residential, having more housing on campus. That makes sense to me. That would help with the density of the district and the, and, you know, some of the commercial redevelopment. So I think that's a good idea generally, but how does, how does that get implemented um, given these sort of pressure points, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question and it's not an easy answer. Um, you know, like you said, there is a lot of, in the last five years or so, a lot of privately developed student housing to the south of campus. Um, and to the point where people in those neighborhoods are, you know, getting contacted from developers who are offering to buy their properties and people are worried about the changing character of the neighborhood. Um, and then the, the most recent one is the the proposal along Deloach to the north um, between Central and Poplar. And, you know, that really has people freaked out. And I think the university's backed off that and now is talking about doing something else with that property. It's property that the university already owns and has owned for a long time. Um, and, you know, just last year, I guess, took down houses on the east side of Deloach to expand parking because they lost part of our parking lot to build a new music school. Um, so it's, it's a tough situation because the university does need to, to make itself less of a commuter school. And that's, that sort of campus setting, uh, is something that students are interested in. It's something that parents of students want to see, you know, when they think about where they're going to send their kids to school. Uh, so we have to find ways as a university to accommodate that, but finding the balance and, and keeping commitments that were made in the past, where the university has said, all right, we're not going to encroach into this area. Uh, those commitments have to be honored, even though, even if they've been made by previous administrations. Well, couldn't that South Campus accommodate some more higher density housing? Yeah, I think it could. I think there's a lot of opportunity on the South Campus for, for redevelopment to occur. And then, then it's just a matter of finding ways to make the appropriate connections, the connectivity between the, the Park Avenue campus and the main campus. Uh, and, and I don't just mean running the shuttle, right? Uh, that's one thing, but making them feel connected, um, you know, pedestrian and bike connections that make them feel like they're part of the same entity um, would, would be necessary to accommodate that. And, you know, using the connection through Audubon Park as a way to, to make those things knit together better. It seems like a logical idea to me, mainly because it sounds like the university has got to build quite a bit of housing to get to where they want to get. Yeah, they do. So Charlie, thanks for joining me. Um, I've been talking to Charlie Santo, who's head of the city and regional planning department at University of Memphis, one of our regular commentators. And Charlie, I appreciate you coming on Memphis Metropolis and look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.